Well, we had to go to Jen's graduation party, and normally I didn't mind going to graduation parties. It normally meant some decent food, and you got to see some other mutual friends. But I was outside shooting hoops in the driveway, and my mom came to the door and said, Brian, you need to come inside and get ready for the graduation party, which I thought meant I'd have to come inside, take off my sweaty clothes, reapply a little deodorant, throw on some new clothes, some nicer shorts, and then I'd be good to go. So that's exactly what I did. And then my mom looked at me and said, oh no, you need to put on church clothes. Now, when I grew up, we had church clothes. I didn't have to wear quite a suit to church. I didn't have to wear a jacket and a tie, but I had to wear everything else. You better have a nice dress shirt on, nice collar that's popped and ready to go, everything tucked in. You, you let everybody know you are worshiping Jesus and you're wearing your Sunday best. And I had to go wear my Sunday best to Jen's graduation party. Didn't make much sense to me, but all right. So on the way there, I'm like, this is so dumb. Why are, we, why are we having to dress up to go to a graduation party? No other graduation party have I ever gone to where I've had to dress up. And my parents said, well, this one's going to be different. See, Jen's parents were loaded they were loaded. These people had a library in their house. Who has a library in their house? But they had a library in their house. They're the type that, you know, when, when they wore the shirt, a little too much starch in the shirt, there's never a, never a wrinkle to be seen. They iron their pajamas. Those are the type of people that were going over to their house for Jen's graduation party. You're not going to have the disposable plates and silverware. You're going to be eating on fine china, or so my parents got us prepared for. So we are in our church clothes, and I'm ticked, and we're driving there, and I'm complaining the entire drive about the fact we're going to be the only ones who are dressed up, and my mother assured me, no, we're not, Brian. Everybody's going to be dressed up. And then we turned the corner, and we saw the house, and what we saw was a driveway full of people playing basketball in shorts and t-shirts, and we were the only people at the stupid party in church clothes. I was right. We were the only ones. Today, what we're going to be talking about is what we do when we're the only ones. What do we do when we're the only ones? Sometimes it may be you're overdressed for an occasion. Sometimes it might be you're underdressed for an occasion. But there are a number of moments in our lives where we feel like we're the only ones. And that's what we're going to be talking about today. In a world and in a society in which we live, that we just have to shake our heads at a lot of times, and we just feel like, certainly I'm the only one who's, who's thinking this way and experiencing this, because the rest of this world has lost its mind. And when we feel like we are all that's left, and we are the only ones, what do we do? Well, we're going to answer that question today. So if you have your phones or your tablets, I'd invite you to follow along with us in the Bible app. It's a free resource that you can download in the app store that you utilize. Just type in Bible. It'll be the first one that pops up. Go ahead and download that. And once you have that downloaded within the app, there's a feature called the events feature. Either enable your locations or type in zip code 54201 and there Lakeside Community Church will pop up. And you can follow along with us as we look at Psalm 12 today, written by David, who was a great warrior of God. He grew up as a shepherd, and then he went into battle against Goliath. He defeated the giant. He conquered kingdoms. He was a great king. He also had some very public 
failings. His, his family life was an absolute mess, and yet through it all, God still used him to accomplish some great things. And he's who wrote the song that we're going to be looking at today, nearly 3,000 years ago. When we look at Psalm 12, and we're going to start in verse 1, where we read these words. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. Save, O Lord, for the godly one is gone. Literally, David's saying, help. God, help. When I look at the world in which I live, when I look at the society in which, I, in which I'm part of, none of this makes sense to me, and I shake my head because the world has lost its mind, and I am the only one that's left. Anybody who's godly is gone. I do not fit into this culture. I do not fit into the world in which I live. And he's literally saying, God, help me, because there's a part of him that's in disbelief as he looks at the, as he looks at the direction of the culture. Part of him is just in disbelief, like, how does everybody think this is okay? How is everybody on board with this? How is nobody raising an objection? How does everybody just seem to be all right with the chaos that this world is going in? There's disbelief, and there's also exhaustion. There's exhaustion when he feels like, I'm it. I'm the only one that's left. I look at the direction of the world. It makes no sense to me. I shake my head. I see what everybody's choosing to do, and it's wrong, and I am the only one. And when you feel isolated and when you feel alone, exhaustion will be sure to follow. And here he is at a place he's shaking his head because none of it makes sense, and he's tired. He's tired of just living in disbelief. He's tired of a losing battle. He's tired of a fight. He's disenfranchised. He doesn't feel at home anywhere. And maybe you can relate. Because maybe as you look at the world around you, you shake your head and just utter disbelief and just wonder, how has everyone lost their mind? How can nobody stand up for what's right? How does everybody just acquiesce and think it's okay? The path and the direction that our culture and that this world is on, how is everybody just fine with this? And maybe you, just like David, feel all alone. I want to let you know that the world has lost its mind. You're right. The world has lost its mind. And while that may make us feel alone, I, want to, I just want to encourage you with this. This is nothing new. This is nothing new. In fact, David wrote this song 3,000 years ago. 3,000 years ago, he looked at the state of the world. He looked out at everything that he saw, and he shook his head in disbelief, saying, there's nobody who loves God left, saying, look at the course and the direction of this world, and nobody wants to do what's right anymore. And the reason that we can be encouraged by that is because we see. We see how God's worked in the last 3,000 years. In the last 3,000 years, God sent His Son, Jesus. He died on a cross. He rose again, giving us hope. In the last 3,000 years, God has compiled Scripture for us so that we can understand the heartbeat of God. In the last 3,000 years, God has established the church. So God is working even in the midst of chaos. And we can take heart that while everything is blowing up and while the world has lost its mind, we can take heart in the fact that God is still in control. We're going to talk about that more in just a little bit. But he goes on to, to talk about the plight at the end of verse 1 where he, where he writes these words. For the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. 
For the faithful have vanished from among the children of man. I promise you this, where there is an absence of godliness, there will be an absence of faithfulness. Where there is an absence of godliness, there will be an absence of faithfulness. And we see this on display in numerous situations. We can see it on display in people's lives. We see it on display in in circumstances. When there is an absence of godliness, there is an absence of faithfulness. It always follows. Where there's a lack of godliness, there will be a lack of faithfulness. And here he's just reiterating the fact, there's no one left. There's no one left. I'm, they've all vanished, and I am all alone. And he goes on to describe some of the consequences of that. Verse 2, the first part, he writes this, everyone utters lies to his neighbor. Everyone's a liar. He writes, everyone's a liar. I remember the first time in my life where I really understood the consequences of lying, and that's when I was in second grade. I had a friend named Mike. Now, growing up, I told all kinds of lies to my parents, and I got spanked and and grounded, Uh, but I didn't really understand the full consequences of lying until I was a victim of being lied to. And I had a friend named Mike, and Mike was in my second grade class. And that night, my dad had got us tickets to go see the Cleveland Cavs play the Atlanta Hawks, and I was so excited about it. I started talking to all, all of my classmates about the fact that I was getting to go to the Cavs game. And Mike said, you're going tonight? I'm going tonight too. And I have courtside seats. And I'm like, no way. That's so cool. I'm like, he's got better seats than I do, but that's so cool that he's going to be at the game too. So we decided at the first time out of the second quarter, once all the announcements were done, we would yell out each other's names and see if we could hear each other in the arena with 18,000 people. So that's what we were going to do. So the first time out of the second quarter came, and the announcement was done, and I stood up, and I'm just like, Mike! Mike! My dad just kind of looks at me, I'm like, my friend's here, and he's sitting courtside. Mike! Mike! And I, I didn't hear anything, but I'm like, all right, there's a lot of people here, maybe I can't just hear him. Then I start looking down by the court, and I don't see him. Now, our seats were up a bit, so I'm like, Maybe I just can't see him. Now, the Cavs would go on to win that game. The next morning, I thought to myself, I wonder if I didn't hear anything. I didn't see him. I wonder if he was really there. So I went up to Mike, and I'm like, great game last night, huh? He's like, yeah, yeah. I'm like, I don't remember who won, which in hindsight was a lie because I remembered... (laughs) that the Cavs won. And so apparently I started the whole vicious cycle that I'm about to tell you about, and that really never dawned on me before today that I started the vicious cycle with a lie. But I did. I don't remember, Mike, who won. He said, the Hawks, right? I said, no, the Cavs won. Were you even at the game? He's like, no. And I didn't trust anything Mike said for the rest of the year. I didn't trust a single thing he told me for the rest of the year. That was the first time in my life I remember being the victim of somebody lying to me. And I experienced the consequences, not just as being the liar, but of being the party that was lied to. And David says, when I look out over the course of everybody that I'm around, all of my neighbors, all, everybody that I encounter, they're 
all liars. Everyone lies to his neighbor. And then he tells us how at the end of verse 2. With flattering lips and a double heart, they speak. With flattering lips and a double heart, they speak. And here we see the most vicious of all lies, the most damaging of all lies. And these are people that are nice to you. They're nice to you to your face. They'll say all the kind things when you're with them. You'll think you're friends. They'll speak kindly to you and about you as long as you're there. But the second you turn around, they're ready and willing to stab you in the back. To your face, they tell you all kinds of nice things about you. But the second, the second you turn around, they are ready and willing to stab you in the back. That's why one of our values on the staff here at Lakeside, one of our values is this. We talk, we talk to people, not about people. We talk to people, not about people. Which means sometimes we have to have some uncomfortable conversations. Because the reason we exist is to help people move one step closer to Jesus. And some of the times that's through encouraging people. And sometimes that's through calling people on their crap. That's just the way it is. Sometimes you encourage people and sometimes you have to tell people you're full of crap. And here's why. And I love you and that's the reason I'm willing to say that to you is because it's true. And if you don't address this in your life, it's going to be a giant problem and a giant issue. But nobody likes to hear things that they need to fix. Nobody likes to be told things about themselves that, that we need to change. None of us like that. But we have just decided one of our values, and if you're going to work at Lakeside, and if you're going to be part of the team, one of our values is we talk to people, not about people. Which means there are times you might get upset at us. You might not like what we have to say, but you can always, always know for certain that you know how we feel. And you will always know for certain what we're thinking. Because we will not play this game where we say something to somebody's face and then as soon as they turn around, we say something else entirely different behind their back. And I'm going to warn you and I'm going to caution you. If you have people in your life who you hear them badmouth other people to you, you need to be very, very, very careful. Never trust somebody who's willing to say something bad about somebody behind their back. Because you might think, oh, it's different. I'm their friend. I promise you, if they're willing to do it to somebody else, they're willing to do it to you. If somebody talks differently about somebody based on their proximity and whether or not they're present, that is somebody who cannot be trusted. And that is somebody you need to be on guard around because I promise you they're doing the same to you. Don't trust people who talk bad about others behind their backs and are fake to them to their face. And he says, everywhere I look, everywhere I look, people are liars. They're flatters. They'll tell you what you want to hear to your face. They'll praise you to your face. They'll encourage you to your face. They'll tell you all the great things about you to your face. But the second you turn around, it's a different story. And the knives are out. And they're ready to stab you in the back. So how do we respond? Well, verse 3 tells us, May the Lord cut off all flattering lips, and all God's people said, Amen. I love this. I love this. 
David isn't like, well, I see the people around me who are wicked, and they're all liars, and they'll tell you nice things to your face, but they'll stab you in the back as soon as you turn around. He's not like, oh, Lord, please, I petition you, please change their hearts. Please deal with them patiently. Please, God. He's like, God, cut them. Cut them. Get out the sword and cut off their lips. I love this about him. This is the feeling and the emotion that he's experiencing, and he's just honest. And he's, he's real, and he's raw, and he says, God, here's what I want you to do. Shank them. Shank them. Cut off their lips. That's what I want from you, God. Cut them. And then at the end of verse 3, he writes this. The tongue that makes great boasts. He doubles down. He's like, Lord, while we got the knife out, don't stop on the lips. Get in there, rip out their tongue, and cut it off too. This is what I want. So it's not like he had a moment. You know a moment where you say something that feels really good at the second, and then after a moment you're like, ooh, yeah, that felt good, but I'm going to be on the couch tonight. It's going to be a while till I get over that one. We're going to be sleeping back to back for the next month. You know that feeling? I don't. I've never said anything like that. I've never experienced anything like that. So if you do, let me know what that feels like because I wouldn't know. But it's not like he had one of those moments where just anger and bitterness got the best of him and he said something that made him feel so good in the moment, but then he instantly had to regret it. It's not like that at all. He doubles down and he said, God, cut out their tongues while you're at it. Beware of the, and, and God, just deal with them. And this serves to just remind us that we need to beware. Beware of the flatterers. Beware of the liars. Beware of the self-promoters. And here's the deal in our world. We live in an age and we live in a time in a society where everyone wants to be an influencer. Everyone wants to be a big deal. Everyone wants their lives to be seen. Everybody wants to give advice to everybody else. Everybody wants to be celebrated. And what we've built are these echo chambers where you can't dare criticize the conduct of anybody. You have to blindly accept everything that they do. And not only that, but cheer them on while they do it. And everybody wants the blue check mark on Instagram or Twitter and to be an influencer and to have influence in people's lives while their life is an absolute mess and while their life is a wreck. Be careful about who you allow to influence you. Make sure that the persona matches the personality. You can't have a great persona while you have just a messed up life and a messed up personality and be somebody worth following. And in an age where everybody wants to be followed and everybody wants to be an influencer and everybody wants to be told how wonderful and how great they are all the time, we have to be people who are on guard and be very cautious about the people you follow. Be very cautious about the influencers and the personas that you allow to influence you. Because it's more than just a couple posts. You have to make sure that their life matches up with their message. Because there's no absence of flattery. It's everywhere. And it's one of the ways that people try to become influencers. 
as they'll tell you all the great things to your face, but as soon as you're not around, they will cut you down. Be on guard. Those who say, verse 4 says, with our tongue we will prevail. Our lips are with us. Who is master over us? They just figure, hey, we'll just talk our way out of any problems that we get into. We'll just talk our way out of it. And we'll rely on our own abilities. If we ever get into any trouble, we'll just talk our way out of it. We'll just rely upon our own self-preservation. We'll just rely on our own abilities. And where does this all come from? Where does this mindset, where where does it all originate? Pride. It all originates in pride. We live in a culture that constantly cries out, look at me, 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 look at me. You have to constantly look at me. You have to see me. You have to see everything that I do. You have to see every detail about my life. And it all boils down to pride. And we see it here. Who is master over us? Which means who's more important than us? Who's greater than us? Who's a bigger deal than me. This is the world in which David lived. As he looked out, he saw a world that had completely lost its mind, a world that made no sense, a world that was full of people who were not godly and who were not faithful. He looked out and he saw a world of people who were flatterers, who would be nice to people's faces, and as soon as they turned around, be ready and willing to stab them in the back. It enraged him. And maybe it's enraged you. And maybe you just scratch your head and say, I, I don't understand this world. I, I don't see why there's reason for hope. This world has lost its mind. Chaos is everywhere in our culture. And it's not only everywhere in our culture, but chaos is celebrated in our culture. So what do we do with that? Verse 5, because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan. And this serves as a transition. This serves as a transition for us. It's a transition from the pride of the, weak, the, pride of the wicked. It's a transition from the lies of the flatterers. It's a transition from the godless. And it's a, transi- a transition to the response of the Lord. Because, of the, because the poor are plundered, because the needy groan, this is the beginning of the response of the Lord. Help is here and help is on the way. This is the response that you've been waiting for when you sent that text, which has all kinds of implications of whether or not you're going to be dating, whether or not you're going to get the promotion. It's got all those implications and you're just waiting on the response and all of a sudden you hear that response. The text comes in, the email comes in, the that comes over you, the fact that your petition has been responded to, God shows up and God starts to respond. I will now arise, says the Lord. I will place him in the safety for which he longs. God shows up. He says, I see the state of everything. It doesn't catch me by surprise. And while you may not see my plan, 
I'm still in control. And the heartbeat of God is on display here. Not for the prideful. Not for those who are big deals in their own eyes. But God's response is for those who are poor. Who are taken advantage of. Who find themselves needy. The heart of God is on display and God says, I've not forgotten them. I see them. And I will act. I will work. I will arise. See, the emphasis of the many is to make themselves look like the big deal. The response of the Lord is to help those in need. The emphasis of the many is to make themselves the center in all of the attention. And the response of the Lord is to pass right, go right past those people, pass them by entirely, and to see the needy. And to not forget them. The words of the Lord are pure words. Like silver refined in a furnace. On the ground. Purified seven times. We contrast the emptiness of the words of the flatterers. The lies of everyone. With the word of God. The very word of God. The God who spoke this world into existence. We contrast the empty flattery. Against the speech of God. Who spoke and created. There is no comparison. And David writes, your words, God, your speech, God, is precious. It's like silver, the finest silver that's been refined in the fire seven times. Your speech, God, is incredibly valuable. All the self-promotion, all the flattery, all the chaos of our culture, it is empty. God, your voice is what matters. Your words are what matters. Your truth is what matters. Not everything I'm surrounded by, not all the empty talk that I hear, you, God, are what matters. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. He says, God's got this. God's got this. And he just remembers that God is victorious. And while the world may seem hopeless, and while your circumstances may seem hopeless, it may feel like you are the only one. It may feel like this world's forgotten you. You may feel like a foreigner in your own country. You may feel like a foreigner in your own family. You may shake your head and say, none of this makes sense. None of this adds up. None of this measures up. Where is sanity? Why does nobody care about things that matter? Why does nobody care about what is right and what is true? Does truth even matter anymore? And it makes you want to scream, and you look around, and you say, where are you? Why is nobody doing anything? And while you may feel alone, you are not alone. God's got this, and God's got you, and God has a plan. And while you may not realize what God's up to, God sees you, and he hears you, and he is not silent. He is at work. We just might not like the time frame that God's working. But remember, God's victorious. You, O Lord, will keep them. You will guard us from this generation forever. God, you are greater. Now, it'd be awesome 
quite frankly, if that's where this song ended, I'd love it. But it's not. It doesn't go out on that high note. It doesn't go out where we can all scream and shout and be excited. Now, there's a verse 8, and here's what it says. On every side, the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. On every side, the wicked prowl, as vileness is exalted among the children of man. Because while God's got this, and while He's in control, and while He's more powerful than the chaos of our culture, and while He can do whatever He wants, we still live in this world. We're still human. In the moments where we scratch our heads and say, God, why do you let this happen? The moments we feel alone, like we're the only ones left that make any sense. Those aren't moments that we have because we lack faith. Those aren't moments that we have because there's something wrong with us. Those are moments we have because we're human. And right now, this is the world in which we live. Because while there's hope, and while those of us who've made a decision to follow Jesus know there's hope, there's also still our present reality that we must also deal with. And we must also live in a world that's gone completely mad and that makes no sense. So, what do we do with all this? What does our response need to be? First is, while we're the minority, we aren't alone. And we live in a post-Christian nation and our, our culture is becoming increasingly secularized and that's only going to continue. And while we're a minority and while we'll become an increasing minority, remember, we are not alone. It may feel like we're alone, but we're not. We're not the only ones. So I want to encourage you this week, just encourage a person a day. It might be a spouse, it might be a kid, it might be a friend or a coworker, but just encourage other Christ followers. Just You can send them a text, just say, God put you on my heart, thinking of you. You can write them a message, hey, I'm praying for you, hope you have a great day. You can give them a short phone call. You can send them a message on Facebook, say, hey, you've impacted my life, thank you. Whatever the case may be, just reach out and encourage seven different people that you know follow Jesus this week and encourage them. That helps people remember that we're not alone. In a world that makes us feel like we're alone, we're not. So encourage each other. Second, be careful who you follow. Be careful who you follow. Make sure the persona matches up with the personality. And make sure the influencers that you follow and who are influencing you are people who are worthy of speaking into your life and influencing you. Third, assess whether your priorities are in line with God's priorities for your life. 
Assess whether your priorities are in line with God's priorities for your life. So assess, why do you do the things that you do? And is this in line with what God would have me do for my life? And fourth, remember, God's got this. And He's got you. God's got this and He's got you. So every day, just just whisper a quick prayer when you wake up. God, I don't know what today brings, but I know that you're in control. That you've got this. And you've got me. Yesterday, I got our boys a new video game. And it really was for the boys. I mean, sometimes I get the boys new video games and it's for me. But yesterday, it, it really was for them because it's a NASCAR game. And I don't understand driving in circles repeatedly, what the appeal of that is. But one of my boys loves NASCAR. He's obsessed with it lately, and so we got him a NASCAR video game, which meant I got to watch him drive 52 laps in a race yesterday, just over and over, watching him drive in circles. And on the 51st lap, he was in first place. And then he crossed over, and he got the final lap. And he looked up in the little video game rearview mirror, and he saw the second place car. He said, Dad, I'm going to lose. He said, you're not going to lose. Just stay on the track and just stay focused. But Dad, I can see the second place guy right by. I said, you're not going to lose. Just stay on the track and just stay focused. Dad, God told me I'm going to lose. I'm like, well, God didn't tell you that. He's like, well, God knows I'm going to lose. (laughs) And right as he said that, He drove his car into the grass, and then he corrected, and he drove it into the wall. And the car that was in second won the race, and he finished. He looked at me, I said, I told you I wasn't going to make first place. I said, buddy, the reason you lost that race is because you took your eyes of what you needed to worry about. You would have won if you wouldn't have focused on everything that could happen and all the danger that's out there, but just focused on what you needed to do. Our victory has already been secured. And the good news is it's not dependent upon us. Jesus has secured our victory. He has paid the price for our sin. He's invited us into a relationship with Him. He has invited us into God's victory for our lives in a world that has lost its mind, in a culture that has gone completely crazy, and we may feel like we're the only ones, but church, I'm challenging you, focus. Not on all the hypotheticals, Not in all the could-be's. Focus on Jesus. He is greater than any of the craziness and any of the chaos that we will encounter. He's in control. He's got this. He's got you. God, I pray that we would keep our focus on you. I pray, God, that you would help us in a world that has gone completely crazy, in a world where we just shake our heads. 
So we feel like everybody's lost their minds and we feel sometimes, God, like we're the only one. Where flattery is just the flavor of the day. And everybody wants to be an influencer. God, where pride is the propaganda that we see constantly. I pray, God, that you would help us cling to the fact that you are in control and reminded of the fact that you are greater than the chaos that we encounter. I pray for the person who's been beaten up by the world in which we live, And I pray, God, that you would encourage their hearts. Remind them of your goodness and the fact that you win. So help us, Jesus, as we worship you. In your name we pray.